Let me invite you to, this morning to hear from God's Word. We'll be in Acts chapter 6, unpacking the passage of Scripture that we read just a few moments ago. But we're presently in uh, a message series for the month of January called Gospel Habits. And so for these few weeks, we've been continuing in that, that, that vein of thinking about the new year and how the Lord would have us live this year, lives that that ultimately bring glory to His name. And so today we're on week four of a five-week series on gospel habits. Gospel habits, as we've said over the last few weeks, these are disciplines that God gives us in His grace that we might know Him and ultimately live for Him. Gospel habits are not simply about checking a box or feeling better about ourselves or feeling good enough about ourselves. Ultimately, uh, these are habits that ought to be responses to God's grace extended toward us in Jesus Christ. We want to reflect that grace. We want to live according to that grace. We want to walk uh, by His grace. We want to live lives that reflect His mercy, His kindness, salvation in Jesus that uh, lead us to know Him more and to point others to this good news of the gospel. And so the first of those habits, the first gospel habit that we looked at was read scripture. Read scripture. As we turn the corner of a new year, we want to be people who consume God's word, who know him as he has made himself known. And so let me ask you this morning, are you reading scripture? Are you reading his word? Are you hearing his word? Are you taking it in? His word, God's word is his gift to us that we might know him. Let's read his word. Let's read Scripture. Gospel habit number two that we looked at was share Jesus. And as we get to know Him, as we get to know the Lord, as we realize His character, His mercy, and His grace, and His kindness, the forgiveness of sins that He extends to us through His Son, our Savior, as we get to know this God, we ought to want to share Him with others. Let's share Jesus. Let's be a people who proclaim the riches of His grace, who see those in our sphere of influence that we might Trust the Lord in speaking His goodness and His grace to them. Read Scripture. Share Jesus. Are you sharing Jesus? Then last week, Kevin, our discipleship pastor, uh, led us uh, to look at a third gospel habit, and that is to engage our community. Engage your community. Read Scripture. Share Jesus and engage your community. Ultimately, engage your community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Kevin led us down that path exceptionally, and we praise God for his work through his church, and let's trust him to engage those around us. Let's trust him to engage this community that God has placed us in for the glory of his name. And so you know, many of you know, last Sunday afternoon we had an opportunity to to practice that, to put our feet uh, into action. And so many of you, over 50 folks, we gathered. We had a, a lunchtime training we had about 40 from our church family then go out together in pairs or, or threes or fours uh, to the apartments at uh, Inverness Cliffs Apartments. And we uh, just began to engage people uh, and to, to pray for them if they would allow us to pray for them and ultimately to, to trust the Spirit's leadership and to present the gospel to them. And so I want you to know, church, that we had 78 encounters. We had in about an hour, we had 78 opportunities to engage people. Of those 78 encounters, 44 invited us on the spot to pray specifically for them or some need in their life. We had 20 opportunities to share the gospel just in that short time together. 20 gospel presentations and 13 people that we marked as people that the Lord is leading us to follow up 
with. So praise God for his work in that way. And I want you to know, church, more about that uh, coming soon. But we'll have opportunities to continue doing this collectively and encouraging one another to to do it individually. So the next time that we're going to go out specifically into this community... It's March the 14th. March your calendar. Come be a part of what God is doing in that way. Read scripture, share Jesus, engage your community. And fourth, the fourth gospel habit that we want to look at today is to pray for the church. Pray for the church. To pray specifically for the church and the leadership of the church and the body of the church, all those who are involved in the church, that God would work in and through the church for his glory. If you've ever searched for a church home, then no doubt there were probably some things uh, that were on your list, some character uh, characteristics that uh, you were hoping to find in your church home. And no doubt, I'm sure one of those, whether or not it was spoken or acknowledged or not, was whether or not the people in that place were friendly and welcoming, whether or not they loved each other and seemed to care for one another and, and, and welcomed guests among them in that place. See, like the quest for a new house, the quest for a church home can feel like the search for the perfect people and place. But if you've spent much time at all in the church, then you know there is no such place. Not here. Not this side of heaven, not until heaven, because even though we are sinners saved by God's grace, we still sin and we are still in need of God's grace. The people called Meadowbrook Baptist Church need God's grace. We need God's grace. And the people who comprised the early church in Jerusalem also needed God's grace. I can remember as a boy occasionally uh, saying after a long day of playing, Mom, my, my legs hurt. To which my mom would respond with something like, uh, I'm sorry, son. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it'll pass. It's probably just growing pains. I don't know if you've ever said that or heard that. I don't think I'm near as gracious with my own kids because when I hear something like that at the end of the day, I'm thinking uh, it's because you have not stopped since six o'clock this morning. You need to be quiet, lay down and just go to sleep. But you know, growing pains are a real thing. According to WebMD, growing pains are cramping, achy muscle pains that some preschoolers and preteens feel in both legs. The pain usually occurs in the late afternoon or evenings, but it may cause your child to wake up in the middle of the night, so they say. Pain in the body, we know this, whether or not it's growing pains or something else, pain in the body disrupts the body. When one part of the body is in pain, the whole body suffers, and the same is true in the body of Christ. See, the the devil loves to see the body of Christ experience pain pain. Devil loves to disrupt what's going on in the church. The devil particularly loves to fan the flame of disunity in the church for disunity threatens the witness of the church. Disunity in the church threatens the witness of the church. And so friends, if we're going to be a faithful gospel presence in our community, if we're going to see our neighborhood and community and city and nations reach with the gospel, then then we've got to stand together on the truths of God's word. We've got to be united together as followers of Jesus Christ who who love one another for disunity threatens the witness of the church. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 6. A rift. 
more specifically, a, a rift between uh, the Hellenistic Jews, meaning those whose primary language was Greek, and the Hebraic Jews, meaning those whose primary language was Aramaic. You see, these Hellenistic Jews were Jews who had been scattered from Palestine or from what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that we often refer to as Israel. They've been scattered from the land of Palestine into other parts of the world. We call this scattering the diaspora or dispersion. Much of it can be traced back to invasions by foreign armies, the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion. And so as uh, as Jews who had a history, perhaps a generational history outside of Palestine, these Hellenistic Jews had some cultural distinctions between them and the Hebraic Jews. And these differences were tested, of all things, by their care for widows. Don't miss that. What is to be a ministry of love and care and sacrifice in the church becomes the center of disunity. I mean, churches would be like us fighting about who's going to read Scripture on Sunday morning. Or what's the best tool for evangelism or or what we're going to put on a a missions wall in the church. We, We would never fight about such things. Surely not. The Hellenistic Jews speak up and say our widows in need aren't receiving the same level of care as those who speak Aramaic. You ever been in a, a serving line and you notice that somebody before you or after you got more food than you did? I don't know how that made you feel, but I, I don't like that. I, I don't like to feel like I'm jipped. I, I want, I, I, we don't have the details of this oversight, but I'm imagining that as the widows went through the serving line, the Aramaic speaking leadership of the church gave more generous helpings of fried chicken and potatoes and gravy to their common language counterparts than to their Greek speaking brothers and sisters. We don't know that. In other words, left unchecked, the linguistic and cultural differences naturally, perhaps subconsciously, manifested themselves with favoritism, causing division in the church, threatening the witness of the church, of the bride and body of Jesus Christ. The very people to which Jesus said, a new command I give you. A new command I give you. Love one another. Jesus said, as, as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. They'll know that you're my people. This is how they're going to know that you're mine, if you love one another. Jesus said the church would be known by her love for one another. Not favoritism, nor fighting with one another. Jesus had prayed before his death. He prayed for his followers and he specifically prayed that they may be one. That they would be united. They would stand together. That they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And suddenly here we have a booming congregation. A booming congregation in Jerusalem. A congregation of disciples that's becoming poised for the first church split. The first of many in church history. There's a problem. There's a threat to the health of the church. So the leaders of the church come up with a ministry plan to maintain unity in the church. And they present that plan then to the church, to the congregation. And all of this under the direction of God. 
See, God provides the people and structure to maintain unity in the church. He's the Lord of the church. God provides the people and the structure to maintain unity in the church. Disunity threatens the witness of the church, but God has a solution. He provides the people, the necessary people and structure and order in the church to maintain unity in the church. You know, the New Testament says a lot about the church. Churches look like many different things today. There's many different forms and practices in the church. We have large churches and small churches. We have more traditional uh, church buildings and, and practices and more contemporary and modern practices. We have house churches. We have all kinds of churches. The Bible doesn't say a lot about some of these things. The Bible doesn't say a lot about the shape and size and style and programs of the church But where the Bible does provide clear guidance and principles for the ministry and mission of the church, we want to hear them carefully. We want to listen well. Hear them carefully, and I think that's what we have going on here. So what's taking place? Well, the 12, who are the 12? Well, these are the 11, the original 11 apostles, not counting Judas Iscariot, who betrayed our Lord. So the original 11 plus a guy named Matthias who took Judas' place. These 12, they come together... They consider the problem, they come up with a solution, and they call the church to hear it and to act upon it. And for the time, these 12 would serve as the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem, but they would soon move beyond that role. They would soon be scattered to make disciples beyond Jerusalem. And soon one church would become many churches, and as disciples are made and churches are planted, pastors would then take this responsibility of leading local churches to know and follow Christ. In other words, the preaching and prayer ministry of the apostles in the early church anticipated the ministry of pastors. What's a pastor? As we noted recently in our time in God's Word, pastors are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ. According to the Bible, according to Scripture, according to our Savior, pastors are are servant leaders who were called and entrusted to to shepherd the church to follow Jesus Christ. And you may recall from our time in God's Word over the past year that the terms pastor and elder and overseer are all used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same position in the local church. The Bible presents a picture of multiple pastors or elders leading each local church, sharing spiritual leadership under Christ's authority, modeling Christ's character, caring for Christ's body, and teaching His Word, teaching God's Word. Servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles are emphasizing here, the ministry of the Word and of prayer. Verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together, that is the whole church, All the followers of Jesus, they gathered them together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables or literally to serve tables. That's a word that's related to the root word for deacon. To serve tables. If we neglect the ministry of the word, if we neglect the proclamation, the teaching of God's word, if we fail to rightly communicate and hear and respond to God's word week after week after week. If we neglect this ministry, the gospel witness of the church will crumble. The church exists for the glory of God. So we want to hear from God and we want to depend upon God. God gives pastors to help ensure that we do just that. Called by God to shepherd the church to follow Christ. Friends, in the course of life, 
In the course of ministry, needs arise in the church. And the need in one church may not be the same as the need in another church. And I think this is why deacon ministry often looks different from church to church. To meet the needs of the church, God provides people and structure to meet those needs. It's Meadowbrook Baptist Church, Rusty Smith and Ryan Binkley, two men the Lord has provided to help meet those needs to help serve and care for the body of Christ here on this hillside, among these people, however the Lord leads, whatever needs may arise. And praise God for His provision and praise God for their willingness to serve in that capacity. Friends, pastors are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ, while deacons are leading servants who support the ministries of the church. According to the Scriptures, deacons are, are leading servants who support the ministries of The church, deacon means servant. One who ministers to and cares for others. They serve by meeting needs, supporting the ministry of the word and unifying the body. Our task is to serve the church. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, church, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to the ministry, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Just think for just a moment about a job interview, perhaps, that you've had. So the parameters and the process of that interview. Maybe you were interviewing, maybe you were being interviewed. I, I remember upon moving to Birmingham in 2007, I remember quickly feeling the pressure to find uh, some employment, to find some work. And, uh, and, and there were a couple avenues that I felt I could take. One, I knew I needed some ministry experience in the church, but I knew particularly with no little to no experience, those things were often volunteer and unpaid. Uh, and I also knew that I had some experience playing tennis in my background, played all through uh, my childhood and high school, pr- played some in college, even had some teaching experience. And so upon arriving, I quickly began calling uh, some of the larger tennis centers, seeing if they needed some help teaching tennis. And so I called places like Brook Island Racquet Club. I called Highland Park. I called the Hoover Country Club and the Birmingham Country Club. And I'll never forget, I shouldn't forget, maybe I will, I shouldn't forget uh, two guys that I, I am indebted to. And those would be Barry Webb, who was the head tennis pro at the Birmingham Country Club, and Boo Mason, who was the head tennis pro at the Hoover Country Club, because both of those guys expressed an interest and before long offered me a part-time job teaching tennis. Really, without examining any qualifications I had, without any sort of formal interview process, without any checking to see if I was full of the spirit and wisdom. Certainly, I think they wanted somebody that would be respectful, but they knew that it was an easy hire and probably an easy fire if I didn't follow uh, marching orders. And, you know, that's okay. But sometimes in the church, we would do well, friends, to remember that when God calls a pastor to a local church, When God calls a student pastor or a senior adult pastor, when God leads a church to set aside certain persons for deacon ministry, we would do well to remember God's hand in that call. To recognize His leadership throughout the process. To see His hand at work ultimately through you. Through the congregation. Through the people. For God desires to use you, church, to recognize and to affirm those in the body who are equipped to lead and to serve. Pastors are servant leaders. Deacons are leading servants. And the church, the church then, 
the local church operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. I think that's the picture that we see in the Bible. I think that's the picture we see right here in Acts chapter 6. The local church operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. Notice the congregation's involvement in selecting these deacons. Verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. It's a problem and the leaders of the church come up with a solution and they put it back on the congregation to to play an active part in this solution. Verse 5, we see that this proposal pleased the whole group, that is the whole church. There's a democratic process at work here. And we Baptists cling to this pretty tightly. The pastors or the elders are leading the congregation to recognize, to set apart, to affirm deacons, much like we have done leading up to today. It's our church polity and structure in contrast to an Episcopal form of government and polity where you have a bishop who's responsible for overseeing multiple churches. Or a Presbyterian model where you have a board, a board of elders that's over, responsible for overseeing multiple churches. We believe the Bible emphasizes congregational polity and local church autonomy, giving members of the church at large a role in character recognition and a voice in the leadership selection process. Friends, God provides the people and structure to maintain unity in the church. And notice the result. Let's focus in for our final couple minutes here. Let's notice the result. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. How noticeable, how marked of a change in tone this is from verse 1 to verse 7. A problem, disunity, devil at work, favoritism, fighting, Church booming, spreading, the gospel being proclaimed and lived. Here's the point. Here's the central point, I think, of this text. I think this is our takeaway. What we see, biblical discipleship fosters the growth of the church. Biblical discipleship, ultimately, this is God's plan to foster growth in the church. Acts 6 describes a church that is committed to making disciples. A church that's committed to servant leaders raising up leading servants and ready and willing to delegate particular responsibilities for the overall good and growth of the church. And so when a local church, when a local gathering of believers, a local body of Christ commits to preaching the word and loving one another and spreading the gospel, disciples are made. And that's what we see here. Growth in breadth, right? Growth in Breadth, the number of disciples increasing rapidly. That's what it says here. And in depth, spirit-filled believers serving the body and priests becoming obedient to the faith. So, Meadowbrook, may we always strive to mirror that. May we be a people who strive to grow in breadth, reaching the lost in our community who do not know and follow Jesus Christ and in depth, reproducing believers who are committed to following Jesus and serving His church. Friends, this is not our task to accomplish in our own strength. And this is good news. The weight of this response, we ought ought to feel some ownership for this task. But the weight and the success of it is not solely resting upon us. It's not... A task to accomplish in our own strength, but only in 
his strength, only in God's strength. And so for the sake of our gospel witness and for the glory of Christ's name, let's practice gospel habit number four and pray for the church. Let's pray for the church. Let's pray that the Spirit would work mightily. Let's pray for this church. Pray for your church. If you're not part of this church family, but you are another, pray for your church. Pray for the church. Pray for your church. Pray for your pastors and your ministers and your deacons and your teachers. Pray that God would use them, that God would use them to build up the body of Christ. Pray that the Spirit would squelch any spirit of disunity. Pray that brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children in the faith would stand together, even those with different cultural backgrounds and identities. Let's pray that the church would stand together. Pray that we would indeed be known for our love of Meadowbrook in Meadowbrook and to the ends of the earth. Pray for the church. And secondly, finally, let's pray for the church. Let's pray for the church. Pray for your church. Pray for your local body of believers, specifically by name, that the Lord would work mightily there. But don't just leave it there. Pray for the church, Christ church. This universal church comprised of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I, I love how Paul begins his letter, many of his letters, but his letter specifically to the church in Colossae. A church that, to our knowledge, he never visited. A place he'd never been. People he did not know, but he had heard about their shared faith in Christ. And so he writes in Colossians 1, he says, We thank God, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you. Paul was praying for them. And when he prayed for them, he was thanking God for them. He was praying for these brothers and sisters because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. And so friends, we we pray for our local church. Pray that God would work mightily, that he would lead the church, that he would be glorified in it. But we know that Christ's bride extends far, far beyond just this local family. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters serving Jesus near and far. I want us to close out this time doing just that. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are in some of the most persecuted places around the world. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are in Nigeria and Afghanistan and Pakistan. We pray for... Our brothers and sisters who are in Sudan and India and China, pray that God would give them courage and boldness and that in the midst of persecution, his gospel would spread mightily. And we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Europe, a post-Christian part of the world. We pray that, that God would work mightily to bring revival across nations like England and France and Spain and Greece and Italy. Pray that God would work for the glory of his name there. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Birmingham and Washington, Kansas City and El Paso. Let's pray for brothers and sisters across this nation that we would not be apathetic, that we would not be so steeped in our culture that our primary allegiance is not to Jesus Christ. Let's pray that God would work mightily for the glory of his name through the church here and beyond. Would you bow with me? Would you join me in praying for the church, praying for the nations, the church and nations around the world? Father, we come before you and we do just that now. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters serving you and 
striving to follow after Christ near and far. Father, we pray that you would give them strength and courage. We pray that you would equip them. We pray that you would encourage them today on this Lord's Day. Lord, as they come together, Lord, some in large rooms and some in small homes. Father, we pray that you would encourage them as they open your word today. We pray for our brothers and sisters in these places and beyond that we've mentioned this morning. We pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that your spirit would work through them. Father, we pray that your name would be praised from Oregon to Florida. Father, from Russia to South Africa. Father, we pray that your name would be praised today and that you would fan a flame of passion and revival in the hearts of your people and that your name would spread like wildfire across this earth for the glory of your name. And Father, may we be faithful. May we be faithful in praying for the church, praying for each other, and walking with you together. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.